This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by The Final Six, a new YA science fiction novel by Alexandra Munir. Beth Revis, author of the New York Times bestselling Across the Universe series, writes, A breathtakingly real look at love, loss, and the dangers of space, The Final Six skyrockets into twists and turns I never saw coming. Learn more about the book over at alexandramonir.com. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 298 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new movie Annihilation, directed by Alex Garland and based on the novel by Jeff Vandermeer. And I just want to mention that we interviewed Alex Garland back in episode 147 and Jeff Vandermeer back in episode 103. So definitely go check those out if you missed them. And this will include spoilers for the movie Annihilation, as well as the novel Annihilation, the first book in the Southern Reach trilogy. So just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Jason Kay, who you may remember from our panel on the Wired Fiction issue back in episode 236. He's a senior associate editor at Wired, focusing on magazine stories. And you should all go check out his Wired.com review, Annihilation is a Thrilling, Terrifying, Surrealist Trip. So Jason, welcome to the show. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me. Then next up, we've got Leah Schnellbach, who you may remember from our panel on Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency back in episode 281. She's a staff writer for Tor.com and a fiction editor of the No Tokens Journal, and her fiction appears in journals such as Joyland, Volume 1 Brooklyn, and Madcap Review. And you should all go check out her Tor.com review, Beauty and Terror Collide in Alex Garland's Annihilation. So, Leah, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me back. And also joining us today is Andrew Willett. He's an editor at the New York Times, and his fiction appears in the anthology Thought Crime Experiments, in the 2016 finalist anthology for the Saints and Sinners LGBT Literary Festival, and in the current issue of Abyss and Apex. So, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. And today's show is brought to you by The Final Six by Alexandra Monier. And here's a description of the book. It says, Set in the near future, this action-packed YA novel already optioned by Sony Pictures, will take readers out of this world and on a quest to become one of 16's sent on a mission to Jupiter's moon. This is the next must-read for fans of Illumini and The Martian. When Leo and Naomi are drafted, along with 22 of the world's brightest teenagers, into the International Space Training Camp, their lives are forever changed. Overnight, they become global celebrities in contention for one of the six slots to travel to Europa, Jupiter's moon, and establish a new colony, leaving their planet forever. With Earth irreparably damaged, the future of the human race rests on their shoulders. For Leo, an Italian championship swimmer, this kind of purpose is a reason to go on after losing his family. But Naomi, an Iranian-American science genius, is suspicious of the ISTC and the fact that a similar mission failed under mysterious circumstances, killing the astronauts aboard. She fears something equally sinister awaits the final six beneath Europa's surface. In this cutthroat atmosphere, surrounded by strangers from around the world, Naomi finds an unexpected friend in Leo. As the training tests their limits, Naomi and Leo's relationship deepens with each life-altering experience they encounter. But it's only when the finalists become fewer and their destinies grow nearer that the two can fathom the full weight of everything at stake, the world, the stars, and their lives. Kendar Blake, number one New York Times bestselling author of Three Dark Crowns, writes, I sat down to read a bit before bed, and then it was 2 a.m. and the book was half gone. This is a space competition of epic proportions, loaded with disturbing hidden secrets and intense action. Your eyes will be glued to the page. And Tramina Russell, 
New York Times bestselling author of the Zodiac series, writes, Compelling, cinematic, and fascinating. I can't wait to read what happens next in the mission to Europa. So again, the book is The Final Six by Alexandra Monier, and you can learn more over at alexandramonier.com. All right, so now let's get to our panel. Okay, so I want to start with Andrew. Uh, one reason I wanted to have you particularly on the show, Andrew, is because you just read Annihilation. And uh, I read it four years ago when it first came out, when I interviewed Jeff Vandermeer. So I wanted to have someone who had a very fresh recollection of the story because the way I experienced it, at least, it's a kind of hard book to remember what happened. The book, for me, reading the book is sort of like having a weird dream. And afterward, it's kind of like having a weird dream where you sort of remember how weird and cool it was, but the the details sort of slip from your mind, uh, which was my experience anyway. Would you do you understand? Do you hear where I'm coming from on that? Did you have a, a similar experience reading it? Uh, absolutely. It, the book, I think, is uh, it works very hard to maintain that bizarre dreamlike tone, um, and uh, and so it, that was one of the things that made me really looking forward to seeing the film in the first place. Was just how on earth do you <laughs> adapt something like this for film? Yeah, and and it turns out how you adapt it for film is you change it pretty exactly. You chuck it out the window and uh, blow up the alien with a grenade. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I, did I mention there's the a spoiler warning? Um, Too late. Oops. <laughs> um, but so, how about Leah? Do you have you read the book? Right? Do you have any thoughts about the book? Um, I read the book at this point. I think within about six months of it coming out, and I had a very similar response to it that. I read it in kind of, I believe, just one sitting and then struggled to remember what I had read. And it was a very interesting experience because each time I would reread parts of it, you're, it's very immersive and it's a really um, sensory book. But then when I would finish reading it, it would I would have to really work to remember specific quotes or incidents or anything, uh, which I think was it's a fascinating way to do a horror story where you, it's very experiential, but then it sort of fades the further you get away from it. And it is very dreamlike. I think that that's like the best way to describe it. Yeah, so it's not just me. I guess I'll just mention too that, so I read Annihilation and then I read the sequel, um, Authority. Uh, the third book, Acceptance, wasn't out at the time, and I did, so I didn't read that. And then I read Jeff Vandermeer's book on writing Wonder Book. And I read all three of those, I think, in like two days, mm-hmm. uh, which again, which also is not the best uh, situation for remembering exactly what happened in, in any of those books. <laughs> Um, but how about Jason? Sort of what is your story with reading Annihilation? I think I read Annihilation at least a year ago. Um, we chose it for Wired Book Club, uh, and then we read the, the second and third in, in the trilogy as well. Um, and then we spoke to, to Jeff Vandermeer afterward. Um, and I had the same experience that you guys had. Um, I mean, I guess I wouldn't call it a dream so much as a, a nightmare, but then it had this weird kind of echoing effect where it, also incepted nightmares in all of us who were reading it. Um, so it itself was this kind of dream, and then we all started dreaming about it. So it was dreams about dreams, and then we all kind of lost sense of up and down. So what did you talk to Jeff Vandermeer about? Uh, sort of exactly that. Um, and I think the story, I might have this wrong, started for him as a dream as well. So it's just dreams all the way <laughs> down. Um, and uh, this was just as it was announced that it was going to be uh, made into a movie. Um, so we were asking him a bit about that and his involvement, which was very minimal. Um, but I remember the conversation being kind of mind blowing in, in much the way that the book was. I mean, he's as weird and wonderful <laughs> as his writing. Yeah. I mean, Leah, you interviewed Jeff Vandermeer too. I think I saw, right? Mm-hmm. I did. Unfortunately, it was only email. I didn't actually get to talk to him. 
Um, but that was um, in relation to Born, which was, it's also a fascinating reading experience. But that one is, it's sort of about a near future dystopia. Um, and it has a giant flying bear named Mord. Um, so I ended up reading that one also very, very quickly. And then trying to come up with questions that hadn't already been asked a billion times. Um, and we mostly ended up talking over email about the sort of idea of new weird um, and how he was like constructing a dystopia. So, yeah. So everyone, was, go, uh, everyone go check that out. So Andrew, I guess you're the only person here who hasn't interviewed Jeff Vandermeer or, or have you? I don't know. <laughs> uh, no, no, I have not had the pleasure. <laughs> Um, all right. But so what was it like, Andrew, having just read the book and having it be fresh in your mind going to see this movie? Kind of what were what was that experience like? Well, I mean, it was certainly challenging to experience the movie strictly on its own terms, because there is that perpetual little voice in your head that's taking notes and doing the compare and contrast thing. This never happened. Oh, look, they've changed this. And hey, where did this plot line go? And things like that. Um, it made it difficult to just stay in the moment and enjoy the story that was being presented. Um, which was a little frustrating, uh, especially because there were a lot of things to enjoy about the new aspects um, of the story. Um, so what were some of the big differences that really jumped out at you just from the outset? Uh, from the outset, uh, you know, they dial back the, the, the paranoia um, about the Southern Reach as an organization uh, you know, the, the, the sense of secret keeping and hidden agendas among the various members of the team is really nerfed, particularly when we're talking about the psychologist. Um, you know, they, the, the, all of the, the matters about post-hypnotic suggestion are gone. Um, and that plot line, as, the, as uh, Lena is understanding what how they are being manipulated by people who have sent them into area x um unfolds it that's a huge element of the emotional tone of the book and the action itself um so i missed that um it also means that you need a new reason to say the word annihilation somewhere <laughs> in your screenplay um uh, there was no mystery about how they end up inside Area X. That's one of the first great things about uh, the the story, I feel, is they cross the border in a way that none of them can remember. Um, and, you know, they walk down a hallway, if memory serves, and then there's a blink and they've crossed in, they've, they've, they've crossed the, the, the veil. Um, and in this case, they just walk across it calmly as you please. Um, they change Lena's backstory. Um, they eliminate the tower and the creeper, which are possibly the most memorable elements of the book. Uh, they're certainly point, the ones that people talk order, about. Point of order. Sorry. I think it's the crawler, not the creeper. Is it? I beg your pardon. Mm. Well, it's creepy crawly. So <laughs> it is. <so>. Indeed. <laughs> I mean, granted, um, there, are, there are some serious parallels between creeping and crawling, but I just think for accuracy's sake. I, I accept your critique, and, <laughs> and I thank you for it. Um, on the other hand, they get uh, – because the, uh, the other team members get more screen time before they get killed off in horrible ways, um, we have more of an opportunity to really develop interpersonal relationships among them, um, which is, I think, a smart choice for a, a film. Um, uh, and it means that you miss them as people, 
when they get removed from the board instead of just noticing their sudden absence and finding that disturbing. Um, and then, of course, there's the Hollywood ending, uh, where you blow up the threat and you save the day, except for, dun-dun-dun, the suggestion that perhaps not everything has been solved and maybe there will be an exciting sequel. Um, I, I strongly doubt there's going to be a sequel to this film. But, um... Yeah, well, it, I mean... It, it, they definitely made changes that served the needs of a movie. Um, you know, doing things that movies need and things that movies do well, as opposed to things that books do well. Yeah. Well, let me say, I mean, Alex Garland has said in no uncertain terms that he's not doing a sequel to this. So, um, it was certainly not made with a, a sequel, you know, a a planned sequel. Uh, I I think we should just say what this is about just for people who, you know, are listening to this without having, uh, watched the movie or whatever, or, or watching this far in the future or something. So, and and the, the the elements that the movie and the book share are basically that there's this mysterious area that's I think in Florida somewhere called Area X, which has become sort of taken over by some mysterious force. And there's a government agency called the Southern Reach, and they keep sending people in to investigate, and those people keep not coming back. And the the story concerns a group of women scientists who go in. Um and are there any other significant parallels between things that the book and the... How about uh, Leah? Are there any other uh, things I should mention here that the book and the movie share in common? Well, I think the Oscar Isaacs character, the husband, is... um, He is a member of the previous expedition, and he is the one who's come back, which I guess, I think in the book, more people have come back. Um, But he has come back, very obviously, not quite as he left. Um, And that ends up being part of the inciting reason for Lena's character, who is just the biologist in the book, um, to go on her own expedition into Area X. Is he, does he die in the, in the book? Again, it's been a long time uh, since I read it. I, I, I believe so. he's dead before, before the biologist leaves. Yeah. And then their relationship is told in, in flashback, I think. In the third book, though, there's a suggestion that maybe he transformed into, I don't know, an owl or something in... In, in Area X. So whether he's really dead or if a version of him died is sort of... Right. The thing that looked like her husband that returned yes. definitely died before she left. All right. And this is not going to involve spoilers for the uh, second and third book. So well, we're going to let that one slide. But, um, no. Sorry, everyone. No, no, no more. Because I haven't but, read the third. Can you really spoil something that's so open to interpretation? <laughs> well, I haven't read the third book, so I don't, I don't want to know what happens in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and enough. I feel like a lot of people have probably watched this movie... Um, you know, and, and are not going to go read the books. So I want to keep it, you know, fresh for them. Um, but yeah, so Jason, do you have anything else you want to add about uh, sort of the basic setup of this movie here? I, I guess I would just sort of gently disagree with, with Andrew. I mean, that's sort of at a superficial level. It's a, it's a radical departure from the book, um, but as we sort of talked about at the beginning of this conversation, the the finer points of the plot sort of fade very quickly from from memory after you know even six months of reading the book. What stays with you is the tone, and as a kind of tone adaptation, I think Alex Garland's movie completely and comprehensively captures exactly what Jeff Vandermeer was going for in the book. So on the one hand, sort of play by play, it's maybe not the loyalist. Uh, 
adaptation, but sort of if he's trying to do what the author of the source material intended, I think he has sort of radically succeeded and maybe done even a better job than than Jeff Vandermeer at, at kind of keeping that consistent tone of dread throughout the entire movie, just as it was in the book. So that's what I would say. I agree with I agree with the tone very much. I think that the tone of the film is extremely it's gorgeous and really unique. Mm-hmm. I agree with you as well for what it's worth. I you know, for all the changes on the on the superficial level, it is absolutely right. it's a it's a great adaptation of the spirit of the of the material. Yeah, and I agree with that as well. And and coming out of this movie, I just I was just walking down the sidewalk with the lamps overhead and I just felt like I was on an alien planet. I mean, it just gave me such a weird feeling watching this movie. I mean, I, I sat in the theater as the credits started rolling, and I'm not a, I mean, I cry a lot in movies, but I don't really cry from fear, um, and, uh, and I actually don't really get scared too often in movies, but I sat there as the credits were rolling, and I, a few tears sort of leaked out of my paralyzed body. I was just completely overwhelmed by, by the movie and kind of terrified. Yeah, because I would say, I mean, it was interesting, you know, the, the last movie I watched that I really, really liked was Arrival. And that one, I had much more of an emotional reaction where I, I just felt emotionally like sad or, you know, melancholy, whatever you would say. And this movie, I had an equally intense sort of physical reaction, but it was just awe. I was just sitting there in absolute awe. And I didn't have – it wasn't as emotional for me, but it was just more like just mind-blown, like <laughs> muscles limp, just like what – you know, like holy crap, you know. Um, but Andrew, it sounds like you were, I don't know, you had sort of mixed feelings about the movie or what was your, how would you kind of rank it overall? I've, I've, it's, it's strange. It's been very hard to pin down, um, since I saw it. I, there are certainly, there was a lot that I really liked. Um, and I think it far outweighs the parts that frustrated me. If anything, I am, I am only truly frustrated in what feels like too neat an ending for a story that who's who's in the book, I really enjoyed how open ended and unresolved its conclusion was, and it it felt a little too tidy um, in its final minutes to me. It's interesting you say that, Andrew, because I I felt that this movie was pretty straightforward to me. Um, but if you look at reactions, a lot of people are totally baffled by this movie. They're totally confused by the ending. Uh, you know, so I guess you and I, it seems like you and I have a different reaction than a lot of people do to, to this movie and to the ending in particular. It just, it, it, it just seemed, this is a, a far too big and weird a mystery to just blow up and say, that's how it's, that, that's the end. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, so how about Leah? So what did you, uh, just overall, how would you rank this movie? I saw a lot of movies this weekend, weirdly enough. I ended up also watching, I finally saw Get Out, and I saw Mute. Um, I sat down and watched Mute to review it two days ago. So it's been an interesting thing of like watching the, watching that many movies so quickly um, that are all sort of different takes on genre films. Um, I... I don't know if I have seen a film that has made me feel quite what this one made me feel. And I think that's what I've, that's what I've come away with it. it like I'm not uh, I'm trying to think of how to put this in a 
good way. It's not that I didn't, it's not that it wasn't thoughtful. I thought it was, ext- it was very thoughtful and I've thought about it quite a bit, but I think I've actually felt quite a bit more, if that makes sense. Um, that I just keep dwelling on certain images from the film and just kind of sitting with the images themselves and thinking about those images and turning them over and over again to see how my feelings toward them change. Um, cause I actually, I ended up writing a follow up piece, which I don't usually do, um, on Monday just to talk about Tessa Thompson's arc in the film, because some of the imagery to do with her was so strong to me and so just moving that I couldn't walk away from it. Um, and I finally had to try to write about it just to figure out how I felt. Um, and it, I've got a, I think I agree with you about Arrival. Like it, it might have been that long since I've seen a film that has stuck with me to that extent that I've wanted to keep writing about it. Um. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, and I I agree with you, Leah. That this movie is really stuck in my head, and partly that's because I've gone to watch it every day, basically since it came out. Um, <laughs> and honestly, if we weren't recording this panel right now, I would be watching it again right now. Um. And I don't watch movies like rewatch movies in theaters very often. I, I think um, Fellowship of the Ring is the last movie that I saw repeatedly in the theater. Um, so I really like this movie, obviously. Um, but let's get uh, Jason. What, what what was your sort of score of this movie? How do how do you rank it? Uh, I think I agree with basically what what Leah said. It it sort of left me feeling something I didn't expect to feel was this just sort of existential terror. I don't I don't know. I mean, it's like I said, I rarely feel that way sitting in a theater after after a movie. This sense that like I don't even want to get up because I'm too afraid to. Hmm. Um, and and I also agree with the, the, the Tessa Thompson arc. I mean, we can talk about this more uh, if we want to, but what I was really wrestling with, even as I was watching the movie, was the sense that Area X is cancer or is this disease that spreads through both space and bodies. Um, and part of what her character represents, at least as I saw it, was this sort of acceptance of, of that. Um, and then I started thinking about, is the whole movie trying to seduce you into kind of craving disease in some way? Because um, a question we asked Jeff Vandermeer, you know, a year ago was, would you enter Area X if you could? And he couldn't answer it. Um, and I think it's because you kind of want to, but you're also terrified to. And this sort of, I don't know, romanticizing corruption in some way. Or uh, I just started playing with wild ideas that I normally don't think about after a movie, you know, ends. So for that, I'm, I'm really grateful and really love the movie. Uh, as a result. Yeah. Well, well so, so Leah, so you were mentioning Tessa Thompson. Why don't we just go through the characters? Um, so there are five women scientists, I said, who go into Area X. Um, why don't you just like, sort of run us through through those characters? Um, well, there's the biologist who is Natalie Portman, and that's Lena. Um, so she is sort of our um, audience proxy character, I would say, that she's the one that's sort of learning about it more than the others. Um, and going through, like, we follow her on her entire journey through it. Um, Ventress is the psychologist who is played by Jennifer Jason Lee, who is extraordinary. Um, like, just so, so good. <laughs> um, and she is, I think, the, essentially the leader of the, of the troop. She is the person that was doing the psychological testing on other people that they sent in who didn't come back. So in some ways, it's kind of hinted that she knows Lena's husband better than Lena knew her, kind of, because he she had to interview him before he went in. Um, so she knows some things that Lena's not terribly happy about, I think. Um, Gina Rodriguez's character, I keep blanking on her name. 
Um, Anya. Anya. Thank you. She is the, she's an EMT. And Tessa, Tessa Thompson's character is uh, Radek, and she is a physicist. And then Tuva Novotny plays um, uh, Shepard, and she yeah. is the, uh, she's an anthropologist. And we should note probably as well that, and I think Leah and I both mentioned this in our reviews, that in the movie, Alex Garland gives the characters names. In the book, they're known just by their professions, um, you know, the biologist, the psychologist. In the movie, it's Lena and um, Dr. I forget her name in the movie. But it's interesting that we forget the names because, I, I don't know, I, I, I really struggled initially with naming them um, and what that did to the movie and the tone, but I kind of came to accept that because it's an adaptation, a very specific adaptation, he's sort of allowed to stamp it with a, a very individual, uh, in a very individual way, and I think naming the characters Let's the audience know that, you know, hey, this is my version of this book. I think it also makes it, it makes it possible for the characters to have conversations with each other. Um, you know, because, because the book is all presented, uh, as a, as journal entries, um, the narrator can say, the psychologist said this and the soldier said that, but to speak to one another and interact as people, they have to, have, you, they have to have names. Well, and, and speak about each other, particularly, you know, it would be really weird if, you know, Lena said to Cass, you know, well, what do you think about what the, you know, I don't know who, 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 who the psychologist said or whatever, you know, it would just sound very strange. Exactly. Yeah, a bit stilted. <laughs> um, well, so, Andrew, what did you think of these characters? Did you like them? Uh, do you have any? I did like them. I did like them. Um uh, I'm sorry. I have a terrible time with names and actually, um, it was more convenient for me to fall back on the book habit of thinking <laughs> about them in terms of their roles, um, than it was their, the, who they, who they were. But, um, the, uh, the, the, the anthropologist, um, I found really sympathetic and interesting, um, because she's the one who welcomes our POV character into the fold um, once they're out in the field. You know, she's, she seems the most sympathetic. So, of course, she has to be the first one to die. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, the uh, um, Tessa Thompson was, was great. Um, and watching her seduction by Area X was... was really terrific. Um, uh, the psychologist was creepy in all the ways that you wanted her to be, even when she wasn't actively undermining her team the way she does in the book. Um, no, it was, it was a terrific ensemble. So sorry, wait, sorry, Andrew, other point of order, like the first person to die is Cass, who I think is a geomorphologist. Um, Oh, have I fused people? Uh, is, is Anya, totally appropriate, but not helpful. Is she, uh, is she an anthrop? I forget it. What Anya's, no, she, she's an EMT in the movie. Right. The paramedic. Gina, the Gina Rodriguez character. Yeah. Right. But she, no, she outlives Shepard. Sorry. I keep going by last names. Uh, Shepard, Shepard is the one that gets attacked by the, the boar. Right. But she's some sort of geologist, isn't she? Is she a geologist? I thought she was an anthropologist. She's a geomorphologist. <laughs> she she said she was studying the magnetic fields of the the shimmer. Can we talk? Oh man! <laughs> See, it really has. It's rewired our brains. <laughs> I don't think there is an anthropologist. 
maybe I've made the anthropologist up. There was an anthropologist <laughs> in the book. Oh, that could be okay. Well, I I just I need to see it again clearly and remember <laughs> where I was when I went into the theater. And <laughs> I think it's kind of nice that you confused them. I mean, as individual as you want these women to be, they also. I don't know, exist in relation to each other so much, and they kind of bleed and blend into each other. I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of like the idea that those four, in the book it's three others, in the movie it's four others, they all f- are sort of ethereal types, and then Natalie Portman's character, Lena, the biologist, is the only one that feels sort of fully human and whole. Um, so I was kind of liking the the fact that I sometimes forgot who was doing what or, you know, who was the anthropologist, if there even is an anthropologist, um, <laughs> not to kind of de-individualize any of these characters, but in a way they kind of serve overlapping roles. Well, just the scene where um, where Lena first meets them, where they're kind of having drinks on the roof of the building, uh, just felt very, they just seem to have a very easy camaraderie and it seems like, uh, they seemed like real people. And I mean, I thought, I thought all the characters were great, but in particular, um, Anya just struck me as a very, like, down, like, sort of down to earth kind of person, like, that I could imagine meeting her in real life, uh, of a type that you often don't see in sort of science fiction horror kinds of movies. It's true. They were, the camaraderie is the right word, and it was actually reminiscent of, of all things, aliens. Um, the 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 military cohort in uh, around the dinner table um, before everything goes to hell. These seem like interesting people you'd want to hang out with. Yes. Yeah, so, well, so I'm glad you mentioned that, Andrew, because this this movie does the plot is is actually fairly similar to Aliens. I was thinking that. Um, it's sort of like, to, to my mind, it's sort of like Aliens meets um, Steven Soderbergh's Solaris, um, <laughs> which which is why I'm, oh again, I'm sort of ba- baffled that so many people seem to be having problems understanding what's going on or like saying that it has no structure or that it's too confusing or something. Because it seems to me to have a very, a very conventional structure. I mean, you know, there's a bunch of people and they go into a dangerous situation and they get die off one by one. And I mean, just fr- from the beginning, right, you basically know what's going to happen, right? You know that... They're going to go in here. They're going to die off one by one. Lena and Ventress are going to be the last survivors. They're going to get it to the lighthouse. Weird shit's going to happen. Lena's the only one who makes it out. Um, and then there's also a very conventional character arc for Lena, right, where she she has this broken relationship with her husband because she was uh, unfaithful, and then that gets sort of reforged in a very like weird way. But you know, nevertheless, gets that relationship gets reforged by the end of the movie. And so it just seems like there's enough very conventional plotting going on here that I. Again, yeah, I was just surprised so many people seem to think that the movie is just so like out there or all over the place or something. Yeah, I think it's I think it was just the ending that since the ending is so I mean it's it's quite different from the book, but then it is it's sort of a, a track jumping moment when she's kind of facing off with the other version of herself. Um and I think maybe it was that. It was the sort of looking looking into that sort of orb and then having to do that sort of dance with herself. Uh, I think that just really um, terrified people in a way that sort of made them short out when they've tried to talk about it. Because I mean, it, it, it definitely shorted me out, even though I was, com- I was sort of the, the comparison I made in my review. And the thing I kept thinking about was actually uh, contact and the way sort of going inside the orb felt to me very much like Jodie Foster in the, in the trip and, co- and contact but the I was not prepared for the dance and the idea that 
she and this other aspect of herself were going to get in this fascinating, violent dance fight and crush each other. <laughs> um, it did, uh, it's sort of, to me at least, it kind of took the thing in a very different emotional direction than what I was expecting. All right. Well, let's hold on. Let's, let's come back to the ending yeah. <laughs> in a little bit. Cause I want to, yeah, I sorry, I jumped more. ahead a little. <laughs> I, I have a lot more I want to say about that, but let's, so, so yeah, so they, they go into the, um, the area X and they start encountering, uh, mutations kind of, you know, uh, plants or animals that are interminglings of, uh, DNA. Um, I think they go, is the crocodile, do they encounter the croc, they go, they encounter the crocodile shark. <laughs> Before the base, right? Is the crocodile shark the first uh, yeah. thing to happen? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so Jason, tell us about the crocodile shark. Oh well, I think crocodile shark kind of covers it. It's a crocodile <laughs> with shark teeth. I think um, it's in some sort of derelict pond side hut um, that the women go into, and then it grabs Tessa Thompson's character uh, and sort of spits her back out, uh, and then Natalie Portman, Lena. You know, whips out her gun and shoots it in the head, um, and it's the first sort of instance of this of what the of what Area X can do to living creatures, which is sort of hybridize them and mutate them and blend them and create these kind of monstrous um, genetic, I don't know, mutants. Um, and and I do not remember particularly this hybridizing idea from the book. Is that in there? I was wondering the same thing. I mean, wh one of the coolest differences for me was that in the book, uh, the biologist specializes in transitional environments, and in the movie, uh, she specializes in mutating cells. Um, and so Area X in the book is a sort of area in transition. Area X in the movie is kind of this, is much more clearly a, a mutation or a cancer or a, or a corruption. Um, so, and that's reflected in, uh, in these, these hy hybrid monsters. I guess I should have asked Andrew, since he's the one who just read the book. Andrew, is there any hybridizing going on in the book? Not that I remember. Things are definitely twisted and strange. Well, there is the there's a there's there's a dolphin late late in the book that the that the biologist sees swimming past, and it slows down and looks at her with eyes that are distinctly human. So there is there is definitely a sense that people and animals are being transformed into other people or animals. But I don't remember the sort of it's a shark, it's an alligator <laughs> that kind of blenderization. Okay, yeah, yeah. I don't as I was saying, I don't think it's in the book, but I wanted to check. Okay, so so they they blow away the shark uh uh alligator and then they get in these boats and they're paddling through the swamp. And we get some um, some sort of indications of uh, a, a little bit of backstory of why they would go on this basically suicide mission. As we mentioned, no one else has ever really come back from this uh, from Area X, except I guess Lena's husband, sort of. Um, Leah, you were saying in your review, did you say something in your review that you were like you had mixed feelings about the these sort of little snippets of backstory or something? Yeah, this was, well, that was the one scene that I I kind of checked out. During, it sort of it, it felt to me like it was pushing me out of the movie because it just felt so expository. Where um, Shepard is just sort of running Lena through why everyone came to Area X, and it sort of just felt a little bit too. Um, this person's an addict. 
So of course they're going to be here. This person was suicidal once. So of course they're going to be here. Um, and it just felt too reductive, uh, compared to the, the idea that they've sort of been drawn to this for a, a myriad of reasons, because I think you'd have a, in order to go on a trip like that, I think you'd have to have a lot of different reasons. Um, and not just, you know, I, I want to, I was depressed for a while. So I decided to go on this possible suicide mission and transform into a different create like creature. Um, so that frustrated me because I thought that there were, if they wanted to go that way and talk about how they were, how each of them was damaged in a different way, I thought that they could do it through just basically just by showing instead of telling um, to be as basic as that, that just um, like learning in a more organic way that someone had been depressed or that someone had had addiction problems or something. Um, I thought that would have kind of woven into the rest of the story more because this just felt, um, I don't know. It just felt a little bit hacky to be honest <laughs> that she just sort of knew all these things and just blurted it all out. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that there are a lot of things in this movie that could be like moments that could be improved with by being developed more or expanded more. But then the more I saw it, I was kind of like, well, I think the length, I think it's the right length. I don't think it should be any longer given, you know, it has to sustain this sort of kind of weird feeling. And so I don't know, I, I'm sort of torn on this because I, there are, there are certain moments, particularly I'll get to later in the movie that I think should, you know, would be stronger if they were expanded, but I don't think the movie should be any longer. So I'm kind of at this weird, you know, place with that where I'm, I'm not sure what I would actually change without making it longer. Do you, what do you think about that? Leah? Do, you, do you have any like specific things you would like tweak a little bit, or do you think it should just be, there should just be more character development? Um, well, I think specifically just with, with relation to that. And I know I keep going back to Tessa Thompson, but I think for whatever reason, she ended up becoming my favorite character. Um, I think it would have been for that one, especially given what happens later on, if we had just seen the scars, on her arms rather than Shepard talking about like, you'll notice that she always wears long sleeves so that you don't see the scars. I think it would have been more interesting if her sleeve had been pushed up for a few minutes and we had seen it. Um, with um, even, I mean, even with Shepard because her, for whatever reason, there's the trend happening in sci-fi that like every woman has to have lost a child and that has to be um, a trauma that keeps being revisited, which I'm finding kind of, um, odd that this keeps cropping up. But, um, in Shepard's case, the fact that she had lost her daughter and then was, she was carrying a toy, um, clipped to her backpack the whole time. And it was, I was assuming at least that that was a memento of her daughter. And I think seeing that for a while and noticing it gradually become more prominent. And then someone else lets her know what happened to Shepard's daughter, um, rather than Shepard just sort of saying it. I think that might have been more powerful without having to add, because I agree with you completely on the runtime. I think it was pretty perfect, but um, just to sort of build it in more slowly. So, but those are the only two that I can think of like offhand that I would have changed if I was Mr. Carl. <laughs> <So. laughs> uh, well, how about Jason? What do you think about what Leah's saying about the, the way that the damage of these characters like is, is written and is shown? I had the exact same problems that, that Leah did, and I thought that, you know, there were several flashbacks to the biologist, Natalie Portman's character, and I think his name is Kane, Oscar Isaac's character, her husband, um, in their bedroom, um, and it was just way, for me, way too many. It kept pulling me out, and the movie is divided into, I guess you can call them chapters, 
Um, and at the beginning of each one, if I remember correctly, it flashes back to to a scene, um, like I said, in, in their bedroom. And I, I think part of it was to sort of set up this backstory and, and do the same thing he was doing with the other characters, which was try to provide some sort of motivation for why, but I really didn't need any of it. Um, and it kept pulling me out of the nightmare. Uh, and it was a really conventional kind of backstory, too. Uh, she's having an affair with a colleague, and it's kind of torn up about it um, because he's away all the time. Uh, and I just, uh, yeah, sort of exactly like what Leah was saying, um, it felt like it was the, that was the sort of laziest part of the adaptation for me. And if we needed to cut anything, I would have cut so much of, of that particular, you know, plot. I mean, if you listen to Alex Garland talk about the theme of this movie, he says that it's self-destruction and how – and I thought this was really interesting. But he said, you know, you meet people and no matter how um, functional they seem, if you get to know them well enough, you start seeing ways in which they're um, sabotaging themselves somehow. And so he thought that was interesting – sort of interesting to draw a parallel between that and the sort of programmed cell death. Um, where uh, Now I forget the, what it's called. It's the something limit, the number of times the cell can divide. It's like 50 or something. Um, and that's why, as Lena says in the movie, why we can't like just live forever. Um, so I think that's all cool. And so I, I think that for that theme, like that Lena has to have some self-destructive thing that she's done. And it kind of makes sense that she cheated on Kane and then he gets heartbroken. And then that's why he volunteers for this basically suicide mission. I agree it feels kind of um, conventional, but I'm not sure what else. Not, nothing really pops into my mind of what else you would do um, that would work with that theme. I just think there are ways to do it much more subtly. I mean, that's, it's all well and good to have that as your motivation, but exactly like Leah said, you don't need to, you don't need to have characters speaking the lines. Um, you can suggest it in, in any number of ways. Um, which the book did really well, even though it's obviously a book and had the opportunity to spell out any number of motivations. But the book was much subtler in that regard, which is interesting. And when it, when he adapts it sort of visually, um, it, it was unfortunate for me, at least. And I love the movie, of course, but unfortunate to see kind of those elements be so literalized well yeah i I did the the scenes with the guy she was cheating on kane with the dialogue felt weirdly on the nose like there's a part where he says um do you think he knows about our affair where it just seemed like in real life he would just say do you think he knows or something and it seems like it was written just to for maybe the slower people in the audience like okay no this isn't her husband this is another guy and she's having an affair and this is a flashback and stuff like i guess as i was saying maybe still wasn't enough for a lot of people, to be clear, but um, I know Andrew. What do you think? What do you think about all this stuff? I uh, I kind of hated the the new backstory for Lena and the the introduction of this affair. Um, it 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 seemed it seemed too conventional for a story that it was in so many ways so weird and unique, and it also seemed like it was it made her husband's motivation for going into area X to Pat. It, it, it sort of made it Lena's fault. You broke everything and your husband died because of it or is dying because of it. So now you have to go save everything. And, and the book was much more subtle in the construction of two characters who cared about each other a lot, but had some fundamental incompatibilities. Um, but I think that kind of subtlety is something you need uh, you need a much more interior medium to construct. You need a book, and I don't think you can do it in a movie, um, or at least not any movie I could write. <laughs> um, all right, well, so let's let's move on. So they get to this um, army base 
where they where um, Lena's husband Kane and his squad had had been sort of camped out, um, but they're all gone now. Um, and they find a uh, a videotape. Uh, Andrew, what you think of that videotape? <laughs> that was that was horrible and riveting and. Um, every now and then I checked in on the friend I was seeing the f- movie with and her face was attempting to crawl all the way off her head. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was, it, that was a mind bending sequence. Um, and I loved it. Um, although I also hated every moment of it just because, uh, how often do you get so lovingly rendered a vivisection on, on screen? Um, and then the idea that the body kept going after he died, you know, the, the corpse, the corpse has spread itself across the wall in, in multiple parts by the time they find it. It's, it's, it's fascinating and sets, sets up beautifully this idea that, um, things don't really die in area X the way you expect them to. Um, that the, Barriers between life and death are a little more porous than we're used to. Um, but yes, uh, the 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 sight of the sight of innards moving around like pythons is not something I'm going to forget anytime soon. Well, and let me talk about the um, the body spread across the wall because I was trying to think why do I like this movie so much because I feel like, like people are saying like some of the backstory or character you know some of the backstory is a little conventional some of the characters are a little underdeveloped etc. But I just love it so much and I think that one reason is 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 speaking of that body spread across the wall is because I don't think I've ever seen a movie that was so creepy and so beautiful at the same time. It's just like sort of max. It's like a ten out of ten of both those things, and it's just a really riveting combination for me for something to be creepy and beautiful in that way. I agree. It, it, it's gorgeous. Their their handling of the 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 strange flowers and the fungi and the mold and the tendrils. Uh, clearly, their art director had a really fine time um, working all this stuff up. Uh, any, let's see, Leah, anything you want to add about, uh, this army base stuff before oh, we move on? Well, the, um, specifically the, vis- the vivisection, what I was thinking of while I was watching it was just that, that it's, it's essentially a male C-section. It's like a male cesarean section. <laughs> and that was the first time I've ever seen that. Um, so I thought that was, it was a really interesting way to do that where he sort of um, because that he he's giving birth to a different type of creature, like he's becoming a different type of creature, and it's sort of inside of him. Uh, because we got in a little bit, and me and, and the people that I saw it with. First of all, my screening was extraordinary because it was the most. Um, I have never been in a movie theater that you could feel that much discomfort at various points. That you could hear people moving away, you could see people like shifting their their faces away, um, which was really. It was, we were all sort of in it together, which was great. Um, but we were sort of, uh, gotten a little bit of an argument later about, um, whether or not that was a consensual, that scene. And my take on it was that the soldier that was being sliced open, um, it, yes, it hurt, obviously, but that he was completely willing for them to do it. Um, because by that point, Area X had taken all of them so much that they sort of wanted to see what he was becoming. And I, 
I read that scene as him being okay. Like he wanted to see what was going on inside of himself uh, and was allowing them to do that to him. I got that impression too. Cool. That either he, he wanted to know what was going on or they thought there was some independent entity in there that they were mm-hmm. trying to remove. Yeah. Yeah. Or f- right. free. <laughs> I also got that sense, but uh, sorry to interrupt Leah, but I was just going to add as well that uh, Oscar Isaac's character in that scene looks kind of perversely gleeful as he's cutting open his friend's stomach. Um, which complicated the notion of consent. A bit. I mean, it, took, it seemed he was taking some pleasure in it. Um, maybe because he's already on the way, his way to losing his mind. But um, I was sort of fixated on his eyes, which were kind of wide open and excited. Which that's the image more even than the you know eels or whatever squirming in his belly that stuck with me. Yeah, I can. Comp- I agree. The, the I think that's the perfect way to put it. That it was it was gleeful, and you don't expect. Like the um, the chestburster scene, which I like, that would be the most obvious um, touchstone for it. The chestburster scene is just horrifying. Everyone in it is just screaming and horrified. So the fact that this was sort of this excitement that they were going to get to see what was happening to him just twisted it in a really fascinating way. Well, right. I think if we're going to talk about consent, though, I'm almost certain that there that at one stage in the cutting open, the guy starts saying. Like stop, stop, or or wait, mm. or something like that. Um, I mean, okay. I think I think clearly at the beginning they're all they, they've all agreed that they're going to do this, and he's like you know psyching himself up for it and everything. But I think he does start saying like no, stop, stop at a certain point in the yeah in the cutting open. Mm. Okay, because um, I've only seen it I've seen it once, yeah. so I know you've you've you're on your third time, <laughs> yeah, so you yeah. are you are the expert. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't know if anyone noticed the tattoo on that guy's arm. Mm, the eight. Yeah. So. So. Uh, all right. Well. So. So. I'll just. I'll. I'll come back to this. I think. But just. Just note that this guy has a tattoo on his arm, which is a like you know an infinity sign, like figure eight kind of thing, which is the worm Uroboros. You know, this serpent eating its own tail. Is uh, it the same tattoo that Lena had? It is the same tattoo that <laughs> Lena had in the. Ah. Huh. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, People so, on Twitter were saying that you should. When you watch the film, you should track the movement of the tattoo. Yeah. So, so in the initial, Wait, what? In, 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 <laughs> so in the initial interrogation, yeah. So, okay. I, I guess I'll just talk about it now. So, so in the initial interrogation scene, you see where where Lena is being questioned by the Southern Reach in the frame story. You see that she has this tattoo on her arm, which it's just it's that tattoo. And then in um, the scenes, you know, before Kane leaves and everything, she doesn't have any tattoos on her arm. Um, and then you see it on that on that soldier who's getting cut open. And then it pops up on um, Anya's arm. Oh, you see in the scene where Anya first introduces herself to Lena, you see she has no tattoos on her arm. Um, but then that tattoo pops up on her arm. And from that point on, she starts we- she's been wearing a, a tank top up to this point. And after that, she starts wearing a, a long-sleeved hoodie to mm. hide her arms. Um, but then by the time that Lena shows up at the lighthouse, the tattoo is now on her arm. So, yeah, pretty cool stuff. <laughs> My arm hair has just gone all bushy. Um, <laughs> I missed that entirely. Wow. Oh, and actually, and when when Leah, uh, when Lena, sorry, is being interrogated, she says something about uh, there were corruptions of forms, duplicates of forms, echoes of forms. And when she says echoes of forms, she kind of glances down at that tattoo. 
I was going to ask Dave, since you've seen it a number of times, does it reward repeat viewings? Do you, do, is it a different experience each time, or do you keep noticing new and subtler things like the tattoo? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly, yeah, there, I definitely noticed stuff on the third viewing that I hadn't noticed on either of the previous two viewings. I didn't notice the tattoo thing really on my uh, – the second time I noticed that Anya had the same tattoo, but I, I, I thought, wait, is that an Area X tattoo or something? But it didn't it, – I didn't make the connection that it was jumping from person to person. Uh, I had to – I read a review that mentioned it, and then the third time I paid attention to that. Um, but like um, Leah mentions the um, the toy that Shepard has that's a memento of her daughter, presumably. Um, after Shepard dies, um, Josie like takes that toy and clips it to her backpack. I didn't notice that until my third viewing. Um, so yeah, and and to like you know the 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 conversation with Daniel at the beginning, the guy she's having the affair with. Obviously, like once you know that they're having an affair, that that scene plays much differently. Um, so yeah, it definitely yeah part of the reason I watched it three times is because. Yeah, it is a film that you get something out of watching three times for sure. Um, all right, cool. So, so they leave the army. Let's see what what happens next. They leave the army base and they hike to. They decide they're going to stay at this house uh, the next night. They they walk to this house. Uh, is there anything that happens before that? Before the uh, bear zombie bear attack that we should talk about? I don't think so. Not that I remember, because that's that is the expository conversation. Yeah. All right. Use. So, so um, can we? Can I just note for a moment that having established that there are horrible sharkigators in the water, <laughs> they then happily get into boats and start paddling around. And I'm not sure I would have. <laughs> you know, I I might have considered an overland route at that point. <laughs> well, they're not fully with it either. I mean, they're losing whole tracks of time. Who knows, you know, if they're capable of rational thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it turns out the land fauna is actually considerably worse than the shark, uh, <laughs> sharkinator, whatever. That's um, true. As they establish in the process of leaving the army base. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually speaking of the, yeah, so what happens though with the time is that they, um, you know, the, they, they walk into the shimmer and then the next we see it's a couple days later and they have no memory of what's happened from that point and, you know, from the point they entered the shimmer until now. Um, and then there are no other disruptions of time, um, that, that we, we know of. <laughs> <laughs> well, and yeah, no, that's another thing where I feel like, you know, given how confused, um, Lena is during the interrogation about how much time has passed. I felt like for purposes of that, there should have been more like explicit disruptions of time. But then like that would just take time in the movie where they would just be like, oh, we lost track of time again. So I, like, again, there's just, you know, there's a lot of things that if this were a four episode miniseries or something, I, I feel would have been really good to expand. But given the cons the length constraints of a feature film, I don't know that that they should have. But there, there's just a lot of little things like that, that, oh, it could have been expanded, I think, to good effect. So, uh, you know, in a perfect world or something. Uh, all right. So zombie bear. So, uh, Andrew zombie bear attack go. Uh, so there's a, there's a nighttime expository conversation happening out, uh, outside the army base, uh, between Lena and the psychologist and the, uh, the, the geophysicist is standing there, uh, not far away. And then all of a sudden she's just gone because something very large has grabbed her in its jaws and is dragging her for the fence at high speed. Um, there are horrible screams, uh, nothing can really be done to rescue her, and she vanishes. And that is taken as a good sign that maybe it's time 
to pack up and go. Um, and as they traverse the terrain for uh, an abandoned uh, village to the southeast, um, they find her boots. Uh, Lena finds her body um, a, a ways off the path among the trees. Um, she is quite dead. Uh, and they continue their march to this this abandoned little village um, and set up camp in an empty house. Um, tell me when you want me to stop. Uh, well, how about Jason? Why don't you pick it up there? What happens next? Uh, wait, w- sorry, Andrew. Where did you stop at the house, the abandoned house? They get to the house. Uh, is this where Gina Rodriguez's character is sort of where she goes crazy and starts interrogating them? That is correct. Actually, so one one thing that happens first is that um, Lena like looks at her blood under a microscope and sees that she's like infected with something weird. Right, um, and and up until that point, um, who's Gina Rodriguez playing? What's her role? Uh, Anya. Uh, um, she's the paramedic. Anya, the paramedic. The paramedic. Well, she's been like glancing down at her arms and seeing some squiggles, and as we know from the vivisection scene, it probably means there are eels inside of her or something, which drives her uh, a little batshit. And she n- knocks out her fellow travelers. Um, they they come to. Um, it's very much sort of a classic interrogation scene, the lights swinging above. Um, and she's contemplating whether she should kill them and who knows what. And it, I guess we well, didn't she's, establish... She's the, well, yeah. She, well, they're, they're all tied to chairs. And she's discovered that um, Lena's... Hu- the, the, the soldier that they saw in the video doing the vivisection is Lena's is her husband, husband. Which only the at that point the psychologist knew. Um, so then, of course, this idea of betrayal and paranoia, that's where that sort of fully arrives. Um, and then as she's contemplating what to do, the boar, bear, zombie creature thing crawls up the steps of this house that they're in, um, and then violence ensues. Well, no, well, for, no first uh, she hears Cass's voice outside screaming for help. Oh, that's right, which turns out is coming from inside the zombie bear, uh, and that somehow in killing Cass, she, the, the bear has absorbed some bit of her, which is the sound of her screaming right before she dies. So every time it opens its mouth, you hear terrible screams. Yeah, and so I was watching this scene, and I was like, holy shit, somebody put an El Zabo in a movie. Like, mm-hmm. how awesome is this? I don't. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? I do not. I don't know that one. Okay, so in Gene Wolfe's <laughs> Book of the New Sun, there's an alien bear monster called an El Zabo, and it eats the bodies of the recently dead and absorbs their memories, and then it shows up at your door, like calling out in the voices of your recently deceased loved ones to let it in. Um, well, and- that's truly horrible. Yeah. <laughs> And so I, I I feel relatively confident that Alex Garland or somebody who worked on this has read that. Or it could just be a coincidence. I don't know. But it was still pretty cool to see it, um, you know, see it come to life in truly terrifying fashion. I mean, what did we think of the, the violence in that scene in particular? I mean, by the end, the, the zombie bear has ripped off the EMT's lower jaw. Um, and you see sort of the entire act of violence. I was okay with it. Um, 
it was it it honestly was one of the more intense scenes of violence that I've ever seen in a film. I think specifically because of that, because they show the jaw coming off and they show the aftermath. And obviously the bear is screaming in their friend's voice throughout all of this. Um, but I, I was okay with it. I think because it was, since it felt so much like a, um, like a natural, it was a, it was a purely natural attack. Like it was, it was an animal trying to find food and it had clearly been tracking them from the, the sort of stand that they had been staying in for that one night and it attracted them to the house. So it wasn't, it was, it was an odd feeling because on the one hand, I was like, this is horrifying to watch. But then on the other hand, I was like, this is just nature in action that this, this thing that's higher up on the food chain of area X is, um, trying to feed. So I kind of liked that it was as brutal as it was because I thought it sort of, it, it kind of set the stakes. <laughs> Obviously, it's, it's, it's a it's a natural attack given a sufficiently flexible definition of natural. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, it's a slightly supernatural attack, but it is also it's not a. It's, I found that easier to watch than the scene of Anya interrogating the other three women, because that scene I was so horrified by the idea that she was going to do something violent, more violent since she had already knocked all of them out, that she was going to do something violent to them. And then it was going to be one human doing it to another human. Um, right. Mindful violence as right. opposed to right. animal I, violence. I was relieved by the boar or bear, um, which sounds odd, but I was actually relieved when it came in and stopped her from being violent to them. Cause it's like, this was a, it was a better kind of violence to have to watch if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, you know, the shot of um, Anya getting her jaw ripped off is a, it's a very quick shot. And I mean, I, I, I thought like for, pretty much from here on out, I was just, my brain was just being continuously pulverized into like, <laughs> just like a helpless state of like, I can't believe what I'm watching. And and that really starts with this, the, the zombie bear attack for me. So I was, I was totally on board pretty much from this point on um, Andrew, what do you think? Well, I mean, the, with the, the, the missing jawbone, we'd already established by that point that this is not a movie that is shy about anatomy. Um, so I felt like we had sort of been primed for that. Um, the part of the scene that has really stayed with me is actually there's a, there's sort of a hiatus, you know, that, that Anya goes dashing out because she hears help me from the outside. It's not just screaming. It's help me. It's language. Um, and she dashes out and doesn't come back. And instead, this horrible thing comes wandering into the room and sort of snuffles among the chairs. There's this long, this really protracted, extraordinarily tense sequence where this horrible monster is snuffling quietly through the room, weaving among the chairs, saying, help me, me, help, help me. Like, it's, it's, this crazy blend of intelligence and and presence and mindless animal and garland lets that go on for an excruciatingly long time it's brilliantly done um before anya comes back for round 2 and we we go plunging back into sudden horrible violence again i i loved that scene and I guess we should say that the zombie bear is taken down by Josie, who has been sort of the the most 
um, weakest or most uh, afraid character up to this point. So that was kind of a nice moment for her. Actually, before we leave this scene, can I ask one other question? Yeah, um, go for it. Which, how... I had some trouble with how badly Anya takes the the news that Lena had a history with one of the previous expedition members. Um, and I, I couldn't tell whether we can write it off as this is, this is a woman who has descended into paranoia. She's already said her, her fingerprints move when she stares at them. But I just wasn't sure I bought it that this was a big enough betrayal, in air quotes, for her to have snapped that badly. And I just wondered what other people thought of that as a motivating spark. Did it seem plausible? I think I similarly registered in sort of a note of implausibility, but I think you sort of answered the question, which is that, you know, she is in this state of heightened suggestibility, um, paranoia. And I, I guess I think that if you're about to go into a, a, a deadly mysterious corner of the planet where you probably won't make it out, you, you do want to know that one of your, you know, team members husbands was the only person to come out alive. I don't know. It, it, I was able to convince myself in the moment, though I completely agree with you, I was wondering, is she kind of freaking out over much? Um, but I convinced myself that, yeah, that's probably something that should be disclosed. Um, and when you do have, you know, shifting fingertips, you probably are just more sensitive generally to betrayals. <laughs> well, well, and I think the implication is also not just, I mean, there's the very obvious stress of the situation they're in, but also there's the implication that Area X is just degenerating their minds, as Ventress says, that it's almost like early onset dementia or something. Mm. Um, but even granted all that, I, I, it, it did sort of seem strain credibility for me. And, and this is another thing where I just think, you know, more time, more development of Anya's paranoia would have been good, but then I don't want the movie to be any longer. But but this is another one of those things for me where, yeah, it was it kind of felt too fast. And But, um, you know, I don't know what you're going to do. <laughs> um, which actually, I, I guess I'll just get that was I think probably the, the, the moment I had the biggest problem with. And again, it's not such a huge thing, I guess. But but in the next scene. OK, so so Ventress takes off. She's heading for the um, White House because she doesn't want to wait. Uh, and, and let her mind to degenerate anymore where the other two survivors decide they're going to wait till morning. Um, and then in the morning, Josie is like acting super weird um, and has basically come to peace, it seems, with Area X and turns into a tree. Um, and that was like, it just happened way too fast for me. Um, mm -hmm. I thought it was kind of a cool idea, but uh, I thought it needed... Even even if it was just even it didn't even have to be movie time. It could have happened that fast in movie time, but it should have been like Lena fell asleep or something, wakes up and it's like, "Where's Josie?" and then wanders out and there's all the trees and she just you know infers that that's what happened to to Josie or something. But just that she walks around the corner and suddenly she's a, she's a tree. Nah. Oh, but I loved really that. Well, but Leah, you should probably take it. It sounds like you've thought a lot about that scene. Oh well, the I would I agree to an extent. I I love. I loved the imagery of the fact that she starts sprouting plants through the scars that she has on her arms. I just thought it was extraordinary. Like it was such a, because so many, it's a pretty big thing among people that have either mutilated themselves um, for whatever reason, or that have uh, attempted suicide by uh, cutting their arms. It's um, 
pretty common to tattoo over it and to get some sort of like to get to do a tattoo to cover up the scar. Um, so the fact that instead of having that, like her scars are just sort of there, but then they're growing this new kind of life out of the scars was just really moving, like unexpectedly moving to me. Um, but I do agree. And it's also, it's a, it's an interesting parallel too, with the, with the Ouroboros, uh, infinity thing that ends up on, on the, the forearms of the other characters. Um, which I hadn't thought of before. Um, but yeah, I would agree that then the way that they shoot it, that she's just basically walking around the corner and then um, Josie's just gone, but suddenly there's like seemingly an extra plant. Uh, I thought that was a little much because I really, I wanted to see the, I wanted to see a little bit of the connective tissue where she's sprouting more like the, the way that the deer had the cherry blossoms coming out of their antlers. I wanted a little bit more of that for it to be a little more organic feeling. Um, no pun intended, I guess. <laughs> I kind of loved the abruptness. Um, I sort of thought that was the whole point and what made the scene both moving and so disturbing for me, because it was sort of the second she accepted Area X, she vanished. Like it was so fast. Um, and I, and I thought that was kind of, that was so horrifying to me that like the second you give in, you're, you're gone or you're different or you're changed. Um, and so that's what really shook me about that because it sounded, it, oh, it looked like she had made that decision and then five seconds later was no more. Um, mm-hmm. and I, that stuck with me, that sort of idea. I like that. That was the aspect <laughs> I loved most actually was that she just vanishes into thin air. You don't see the transformation happening. It's not even clear which of these strange flower trees. And let's take a moment to acknowledge how beautiful those flower trees all were. That was amazing. Um, but you never, you don't see where she, you, you can't identify the body, even a transformed body. It's like all other moments of violence in this film. It hits you like a truck before you even know it's coming and then it's over. Um, it was, it was great. I loved that. And it spoke to me about, there spoke to me, um, on this, this, I guess it's a theme of sort of not quite being able to see around corners or see through things or, I mean, there's constantly a, glare of sunlight in your face this entire movie um, and you're sort of squinting and you can't quite make things out or you're seeing something through a foggy window or through water uh, or through the barrier of the of area X itself um, and so you you never get that kind of direct line of sight on anything um, so following her she's kind of walking into the trees and then not quite being able to see where she ends up or where she goes for me felt sort of representative of the entire, what the entire movie was trying to do visually. Well, I really like that idea that once you give in to area X, you can just vanish in an instant. Maybe if they had spelled that out just a little bit more, it would have worked better for me, but um, yeah, it was, it was fine. Um, Okay. So now we got the last section, the lighthouse. Um, Okay. So, so next we see uh, Lena and she's standing on the beach and uh, we see, see the lighthouse in the distance, and there's all sorts of weird crystalline trees. And there's an odd assemblage of skulls and bones in front of the lighthouse. Is there any... Do we know whose bones those are in particular? It's completely unexplained. Yeah, okay. Because I think that is that is there in the book as well, if I remember correctly. That when they right. get to the lighthouse, there's there's sort of a bone structure at the lighthouse. 
did these strike you guys as sort of alters? I mean, every time, I mean, the, there's the back in the, where they see the video footage and then the guy is sort of on the wall. Um, that was sort of like an, uh, I don't know. And then outside the lighthouse, I was getting senses of like sort of religious altars, but who made them and why obviously is the, is the mystery. But I didn't, I didn't take that thought any further than are these altars, but that's sort of where I ended up on, on those, that sort of visual motif. Right. I think that's something that comes through. That's, that's a holdover from the book, certainly that, you know, the, the lighthouse has been a place where people have, have been holed up repeatedly. Um, and that the, 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 the grandiose presentation of the bodies is just evidence that whoever was stuck in this lighthouse was quite out of their heads by that point. Um, and that was something that made me sort of sad about once we get into the lighthouse, we never really explore the upper floors. There's a staircase up to somewhere, but you never, you never go up. And I was, I was sad. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, okay, good. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I was also kind of frustrated by that. I really wanted to know what was on the upper floor. (laughs) So the fact that she never went up the stairs was kind of infuriating. Especially because when you see it from a distance, there is a blazing light coming from the top. Mm-hmm. Like, clearly there is something interesting going on up there, <laughs> and she doesn't go up. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I was saying that I read the book four years ago, but the part that really sticks out so clearly in my mind is, is yeah, when she gets to the lighthouse and there's the, just the big stack of journals of all the, all uh, the expeditions from beforehand. Like, oh, so no. good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I think that's my favorite part of the book is that gut punch when the whole narrative upends itself and the narrator suddenly understands that what she thought had been going on was not at all what had been going on. Um, And, and that the Southern reach doesn't really care in some way about what everyone is faithfully keeping in these journals because they end up in a moldering heap. Well, it's it's interesting, actually, because one of the big changes from the book is that in the book, the Southern Reach has been investigating Area X for 30 years, and in the movie, it's three years. So that's a much different thing. I mean, I think it's much more – I think it's very implausible that something like this could be going on for 30 years and remain secret. Um, but then you don't get the sort of institutional stuff that I guess that's getting into the second book, which I have read. But, um, yeah, I just want well, to isn't, draw it. Isn't it implied in the book that the the investigations – that the, that area X has been there and active for much longer than people generally understand. You know, they say that they've been sending in missions for just a few years, but in fact, they've been sending in mes- missions for a lot longer than that. that that's oh. just another, another layer, another layer of the, uh, the deception. Oh, so you're saying in the movie, when they say it's three years, that that's a lie. It could be, we don't mm. really know. It's, it is a similar lie is told in the book. And, and unveiled. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, let's get Jason in here. Why don't Jason? Why don't you tell us about what happens on the boring first floor? <laughs> of the um, well, I, I think I kind of want to talk about what Andrew just pointed oh, out. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, well, it's, it's, it's related. Um, which is, should she have climbed the, the staircase? And in the chat we had with Jeff Vandermeer, he said a lot of people read into the the tower and the tunnel, sort of Freudian obvious Freudian images, um, but he was much more interested, less in that interpretation and more in destabilizing 
the idea of height and depth, um, and that you know what's up is going down and what's down is going up. In the book, the the biologist refers to this tunnel that goes into the earth as the tower. Um, so kind of inverting uh, that spatially. Um, and I sort of I kind of liked when she walks into the lighthouse that there is this staircase that she never goes up because which is exactly what you'd expect of a character who goes into a lighthouse. Um, but I think for people who don't read the book, to see her go into a lighthouse and then to go sort of into it, into this hole in the ground, um, is the weirder, kind of more magical thing to do, um, where she's walking in, you expect up, and she actually goes in or down. Um, is felt true to the Vandermeerian destabilization, if you will. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we should also say that the reason there's a hole in the ground is because, as we saw in, I think, the opening scene, a meteor had crashed into this lighthouse and sort of punched a hole in the wall and punched a hole in the floor and created this underground cavern or something. And so that's essentially what happens on that first floor, by the way. Back to your question, she she enters, sees this kind of... Wait, 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 actually, wait, before she enters the hole, though... Oh, I, I suppose she sees this sort of charred remains of um, a man and then a, cam a camcorder pointing at it. Um, somehow the footage is still accessible. She plays it and sees that um, it looks like her husband is the, is the man whose remains are now before us. Um, he's talking to someone behind the camera. Uh, there's a kind of odd mirroring happening. You're not sure what's happening. He lights up, what is it called, a plasma bomb Phos or something? Phosphorus. Phosphorus. Right. Um, it instantly vaporizes him in this blinding light, and then out from behind the camera walks her husband. So who was her husband? Who was some alien? Uh, that sort of begins this extended sequence, sequence where um, you're kind of, there's a lot of doubling and dancing with yourself. Um, I liked Leah earlier, she called it a dance, and it very much is a dance, but maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. Well, let me say, in the, in the part where you see Kane he sort of gives a little monologue to the camera before he incinerates himself, where it's, it's, it's clear that he's completely lost touch of who he is or like what's going on at all. Does he have an and accent he, in that and scene? He, and he's, yeah, and he seems he does. to be speaking with a strong southern accent, which he doesn't have elsewhere in the movie. So I think the implication is supposed to be that, you know, one of, the, one of his squad mates had a southern accent and he's kind of gotten it all scrambled. He's, you know, like, like the tattoo, he's kind of gotten his accent has gotten scrambled along with, you know, other aspects of himself. But doesn't he say he's not sure who he is anymore? Right. He says into the camera, like, tell Lena, I don't know. He doesn't say tell her I loved her, but he says something about Lena, which he makes me think find Lena. Right. That he is is the true husband, but then the accent complicated that because is it not her husband, or has he always had this accent and I wasn't paying attention? I and I didn't know who was I mean, in that moment everything stops making sense, but in the best possible way. <laughs> Well, no, but I think the implication seems pretty clear to me that the guy who dies is her husband and the guy operating the camera is uh, some is the duplicate. That was my thought, too. And I, I also was thinking that the – I just don't know if they built it in quite enough, but that the accent shift was supposed to imply that they'd sort of – that the four guys that were there before had sort of morphed into each other. Um, but since we don't really hear the rest, we don't see the other – I guess there were four of them total. We only see the guy that gets vivisected and Kane, Lena's husband. Uh, we don't really get a sense of who the other two were. So, like, we sort of have to embroider a bit uh, when we see that scene. 
Yeah, and in right. re- in reviews I read, there was a lot of confusion about like, oh, his accent is so bad. Like, you know, like, <laughs> uh, it, it didn't come through. I think to many, many, many people that that was intentional. Yeah. I remember during that monologue wondering, wait a minute, has he had this accent the whole time and I wasn't paying attention? But it would have been very simple, you know, and perhaps in an earlier cut with a slightly longer version of the Visisection video, all we needed was for another member of that squad to say six words with that accent and it would have brought it home much more cleanly. Yeah. And I just wonder if, if that if that opportunity was taken, but then cut for time or something. Well, I read, maybe Dave, you know better, that there was a version of this that Alex Garland had originally cut that the studio was unhappy with. I don't know if it was changed or if this is the version he wanted it to be. Am I making this up? No. Well, um, that's a whole big thing. Um, but I guess we can get into it. So, 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 yeah. But no. So, so basically, um, they made this movie and they screened it. And audio and the test audience was like, I don't, I don't get it. And then the studio said, you need to change it to like make the ending more like happy or whatever. And, and Natalie Portman needs to be more um, uh, sympathetic and stuff like that. But um, Alex Garland and his producer, whose name I think is Scott Rudin, um, had like their contract or whatever said that they had final cut. And so they said, nope, we're keeping it the way it is. Oh, cool. Um, but that's why I don't know if you followed this, but that's why the studio then sold the rights the foreign rights to Netflix to because they didn't think that it was going to do well in theaters and they were trying to basically cut their losses. Um, so, so no, this movie is the way that Alex Garland wants it. Um, the only thing I saw about cutting stuff was that he said that there was a 10 minute sequence that he cut, which sounds honestly pretty stupid to me. So I'm glad he cut it where <laughs> um, Lena, like when she, at the very beginning, before they go into the shimmer, she like busts out of her cell and like gets up to the roof on her own um, and sees the shimmer. And so actually the scene where, and they didn't reshoot it. They just like cut, cut it in such a way as to get to excise that like little subplot. Um, And then the only other thing I've seen that was cut was that at the very end um, in this original script, you saw like a whole rain of meteors falling in the sky um, and they cut that out. But aside from that, as far as I know, this is like exactly how it was written and how it was shot and everything. And there was no studio interference. Good to know. Cool. Um, but yes, yeah, so um, so how about Andrew? Tell us about this cave, this uh, going going into the underground area. <laughs> oh, you bastard. Um, well, uh, what happens in the cave is something that I think no linear mind could fully explain. Um, uh, what we do know is she... She crawls into the hole, and it's again reminiscent of H.R. Uh, Giger in that it's 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 definitely not terrestrial architecture. It's strange and shiny and fluted, and um, seems to have uh, these arches that all go off in different directions. And in the center is a low platform where we find the psychologist. Um, who for a moment her her something is wrong with her face but then she turns around and by the time she's looking directly at Lena her face is more or less the way we expect it to be and she fairly shortly thereafter turns 
into a okay, fountain right. of light. Actually, okay. So, so I'll, since I've seen it three times, I'll, I'll, I'll pick up. So, 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 so she, yeah, gives please. A, so, so she, gives, I barely understood it then. I can't reconstruct it now. Yeah. So, she, so she gives a monologue that goes basically. I used to wonder what the uh, shimmer was, but now I understand. It's inside me now. It's going to destroy. It's going to like expand and expand, and it's going to break us down into our smallest parts until nothing remains. Annihilation. Ah, uh, yes. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> um, at which point, a sort of like light starts glowing in her throat and shoots out of her mouth, and her whole body sort of like burns up like a um, like a candle wick, and giant um, sort of undulating uh, like ribbons of light start swirling around in the air. Um, and then let's see. Let's see. Uh, okay. I can, so, I can. Oh, okay. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> All right. And so then the ribbons of light sort of, I think I'm, I'm in, I might be missing a step here, sort of coalesce into this big, uh, in, impossible to describe thing, which is a sort of shifting, uh, swirls of like smoky ribbons with sort of pulsing light at their center and it has a sort of like glowing mouth that opens up like the petals of a flower and uh, Lena is staring into it and a drop of blood sort of gets sucked into it and the drop of blood just starts dividing and forms into a um, a sort of humanoid figure of a sort of iridescent uh, abstracted uh, character. Sort of a shimmering Naugahyde <laughs> um, uh, uh, store mannequin thing. Yeah, that's that's a good, yeah. Well, it's funny because in the um, interrogation scenes where they say, can you describe it? And she's like, nope. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it is actually, it is very difficult to describe. So I, uh, you know, I sympathize with her there. <laughs> um, so how about uh, Leah? Do you have anything you want to add at this point? Um, I think you did an admirable job, actually, of trying yeah, to describe this. Yeah, this is what happens thing. when you see it three times. All right, so yeah, so so at this so at this point, um, Lena is facing off against the uh, mannequin thing and whips out her uh, machine gun and starts firing bullets at it. And as the bullets pass through its body, they sort of create these swirls of matter in the air around it, sort of like a I don't know I don't even know how to describe it. Sort of these there's these swirly patterns coming out of it. And she runs up out of the cave and uh, into the lighthouse, only to find the thing is now there, standing, blocking her way. So, Jason, oh. tell us your perspective on what happens now. <laughs> I feel like we each, in turn, get this uh, dread having to describe what happens. You almost don't want, you almost don't want to describe what happens. Um, and I, in writing about it, very consciously avoided any reference whatsoever to this scene because it's sort of something you just kind of have to experience. Um, and I will say the, the CG felt very present, um, obviously. I mean, it's this undulating kaleidoscopic mass that's hovering that turns into this mannequin. Um, but I didn't mind how, how computer-generated it looked because maybe this alien technology is just that. It's alien technology. But anyway... Um, it, oh, actually, let me, sorry, let me add one thing about, about the, the undulating mass in the air. Like, I thought it was freaking awesome. And oh, um, the, the mm -hmm. sound design, like both visually and the sound design, it's like, wah, wah, wah. like, it's just like, it was as close to a religious experience as I'm ever likely to have, <laughs> like watching that freaking thing. It was so 
again, I was just like pulverized. My brain was just pulverized into like I could just sit there and stare in awe. Okay, but sorry. So, so oh, then, yeah. She, yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, I blacked out so much of this, but like, it's uh, it, at one point, it be, it. I don't know if it touches Lena, but it it eventually the mannequin, this iridescent mannequin, long limbed thing, transforms into a a clone, I suppose, of of Lena, the biologist, and she's trying to escape, and it's trying to keep her there, uh, and. They kind of move in perfect. I mean, it looks like the the creature is very actively mirroring everything Lena's doing, um, but it's just sort of a half step behind. So it has this weird: why is it mirroring it? Is it exactly a mirror? Um, and it and it becomes this incredible extended sequence where they're shifting and moving around the apartment, and it's, it's attacking Lena, but also seems to be trying to keep her there for some reason. Um, and it, it eventually ends. Am I going too far? No, that's good. Yeah. Uh, with a return to the, uh, phosphorus, she, she somehow ignites the phosphorus bomb when the creature's holding it and it, it kind of very slowly explodes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, and so the, I mean, there's a very strong impression throughout this whole scene that the creature is like, I don't know, it's sort of like weirdly childlike and like doesn't mm-hmm. understand what's going on and is like acting somehow like uh, reflexively or something. I don't, do, do other people share that impression? Yeah. I found myself thinking of uh, Peter Watts' Blind Sight, which I read last summer, um, which is uh, this fabulous science fiction novel that talks about um, the question of whether you can have an intelligence without a conscience. It definitely, it uh, the, the short version being, it talks a lot about what an alien intelligence would need to do and need to think and whether we would be able to relate to it in any way. And I found myself thinking, is this mannequin thing trying to communicate or is it just mirroring its environment because it's trying to figure out what's going on or pursue goals of its own? Does it know that she's there as a, as an intelligent individual, or is she just more building material that it's trying to figure out what to do with? It's, it's fascinating. It, it, you definitely feel like she has run up against something that has its own mind and its own agenda. And it is entirely possible that the two of them are never, ever going to be able to communicate in a meaningful way. Oh, it's, I, it was fascinating. Oh, sorry. I me. left out part of uh, Ventress's monologue is she says, I don't know what it wants or if it wants. And that's something that Lena um, echoes in her interrogation later, where she says, like, I don't know if it wanted anything. It just it mirrored me like I attacked it. Um, so, yeah, there's there's the very strong implication that the thing does not have motivations. Well, I like when of, she notes that she attacked it because she certainly does and did. Um And, yeah, throughout the entire sequence, I didn't really ever get the sense that this thing wanted to cause her any kind of harm even when it was very kind of violently trying to keep her in the room it was almost i felt doing it to try to communicate something it i don't know i i was kind of on the creature's side weirdly and then i was mad at her for being so uh just trying to get out of there when she had this opportunity to understand what this thing was Um, but then she very kind of self-awarely says in the interrogation later that it was she who attacked it so there was a bit of i thought a bit of note of regret or remorse that like you know she was the antagonist there i don't know well i think that ultimately she approaches it she's a cancer specialist and i think 
she makes this value just judgment that whatever it thinks it's doing, it is ultimately a cancer on her local reality. You know, it is scrambling everything. It's ruining everything. It's killing people. And that you can't, if it's, if it's taking that, if it's that destructive, you can't negotiate with it. If it won't talk to you, you just have to cut it out. And so she moves directly to now I'm going to blow it up. <laughs> and she's able to just place the phosphorus grenade into its hand and, you know, it doesn't resist or anything. You know, it doesn't have any idea what's going on. Exactly. Um, uh, Leah, did you want to say something? Oh, just the. I was really intrigued because, yeah, I, I was also on the creature's side for a lot of the a lot of that because it was it was just extremely it just made me wonder like if she hadn't gone for the gun immediately what would have happened if she hadn't attacked it and then because presumably this is what happened to Kane presumably Kane was doubled and didn't attack his double or at least didn't kill his double so it so there yeah, well, he, he seems to have, he seems to have made friends with his basically yeah. Well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> so, or at least, at least, like enough to teach it to use a camcorder. But um, <laughs> like, it's pretty cool. But um, yeah, it was just—it was really interesting to me because it was such a complex scene of like I completely understood her revulsion because that I, I completely agree with the the cancer an- analogy because I think it was just such a she was just so repulsed immediately um, and just wanted to stomp this this thing and get it away from her um which i thought was yeah i just thought that they dealt with it in a really beautiful way but i was the the entire scene i was wondering what would have happened if she took the other path basically and didn't yeah. go for the gun right so so this thing oh and i i don't know if we said explicitly but it starts turning from a mannequin thing into a duplicate of her um right before she sets off the the phosphorus grenade um, and then it sort of, it's on fire and it just like, it accidentally sets the lighthouse on fire and it accidentally sent, sets Kane's desiccated corpse on fire and it sort of crawls down into the cave and sets everything down there on fire. And so, um, so Lena stumbles out of the lighthouse and the whole lighthouse goes up in flames. And when it does all the manifestations of area X sort of collapse into flaming ruins, uh, sort of like magma, like ruins, uh, which again, one of the coolest things I've ever seen. <laughs> um, and that's pretty much all that happens, right? And then we go back to the uh, the interrogation. Is there anything? Then we're, we're then we're back in the frame story in the interrogation. Is there anything else anyone wants to say about the lighthouse before we get um, on? Just that I loved the crystal trees uh-huh. because because as you get to me, what that was is a signpost that you have gone so deep into Area X that. Now, not only have we blenderized the animal and vegetable kingdoms, but the mineral kingdom is getting in on the act. <laughs> that, that all 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 divisions are really breaking down at this point. Right, and and crystals, of course, refract, and I mean, it becomes such this scene about, like we've been talking about, doubles and refractions and echoes and mirrors. Uh, and who's what and what's real. Uh, and so the crystal trees, like Andrew's saying, were kind of a beautiful way to cue that up. Okay, so yeah, so so it appears that Area X has been destroyed, that the Shimmer vanishes, 
And uh, Lena tells her whole story to the Southern Reach, although she's not able to give them very satisfactory explanations for anything that's happened, understandably. Um, and then in, they say that Cain, who we, we now know really is the Cain duplicate, that he's sort of recovered. Um, I think we kind of elided some of the stuff, but he, he, he uh, was – they took him to the hospital. He's coughing up blood at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but now he's fine. Uh, and so Lena goes in to talk to him. And they have a very brief conversation where she says, you're not really Kane, are you? And he says, I don't think so. And he says, are you Lena? And then she just kind of like, I think, I don't think she says anything. I think she just kind of looks at him and then he stands up and embraces her. And we see sort of colorful rainbow light playing about his irises. And then we see a shot of her and the same thing is happening with her. And then the movie's over. Oh, it gives me just chills just thinking about it. <laughs> Um, I think that's kind of the worst part of the whole movie. <laughs> uh, okay, well, let's talk. So why is that the worst part of the movie? <laughs> well, you, you neglected to mention the, the truly worst part where they're like, so it's aliens uh, in their sort of conclusion to the interrogation, uh, which, sure, obviously it's some sort of alien intelligence. But in that moment, hearing the word alien at the end of the movie, like, isn't an alien? Isn't it an alien? Oh, it is an alien. I was just sort of so, like, deflated. Um, and just kind of pretended it never happened. And really everything after the, the implosion of Area X, I didn't really need. I get why it's there. Um, but I'd prefer just not to, to, to fixate on it. Uh, Andrew, what do you think about that? Um, I was also quite unsatisfied with the ending. Um, I think as I said up, up, up at the top, I would, I much preferred a less neatly tied bow on Area X um, with that sort of Hollywood... I mean, it's not quite, and then the hand leaps up out of the grave and the monster isn't dead after all. It's a much more soft-pedaled version of that trope that we think we've solved it with a bomb, but no, we haven't really. Um, And it just, it it felt too Hollywood. I loved the way the book just allowed her to wander off into the wilderness to see what there is to learn and to continue to look for the original version of her husband, whom she believes is still alive. Um, but I can, I can picture that if you are trying to turn a very strange book into a film that Hollywood is going to let you make, that kind of ending is maybe not going to s- going to make it through the first draft. Uh, Leah, what do you think? I, but first of all, I agree that there's no way that they were going to let her just walk off into the woods at the end. Um, I, the way that I, first of all, I completely also blacked out the fact that um, I think it's Benedict Wong is the actor Uh that uh he says, Mm -hmm. Oh, so it's aliens. (laughs) I had honestly forgotten that until you said it because I remember at that moment, just kind of shuddering. (laughs) Why did did you put this kind of period on this amazing sequence? Um, But the, I chose to go with the idea that first of all, that it is the original Lena that comes back out because I think that there's also been some talk about whether or not it's, it is her or if um, she and her double swapped during the period when she gets knocked out in the lighthouse, um, which I thought was kind of interesting, but I'm going with the idea that she's just been, she's taken some of area X into her 
so that she is now not fully human or she's more than human, I suppose would be the better way to put it. Um, so I, I go back and forth. Part of me hates the, the glowing eye thing because I, it does feel like sort of the question mark after the end, um, on the end title. But I also like the idea that Lena has become something else. And I just was, I was also really, uh, emotionally invested in their embrace because especially after the dance with the double, I was worried for, for just a second in that scene, when he first gets up, I was worried that it was going to go violent again and that she was going to rush at him or that he was going to rush at her and that it was going to turn into, um, another confrontation, like a, like sort of a button on the whole thing to have a confrontation between the, the two of them. Um, and the fact that instead he just sort of puts his arms around her more like a kid, more like a child looking for some sort of, um, acceptance than anything else. And that she just sort of accepts that back and embraces him back. Um, that part I was completely willing to go with. But then, yeah, the, the, the glowing eye, I'm of two minds. <laughs> so I am my own double. <laughs> in the, in the screening I saw, the second the eyes glowed, guy sitting next to me says to his friend like well they set that up for a sequel and it's like i just hate that that's what the immediate reaction to that scene is which is true at like the most superficial level but that's like not the first thing i want anyone to say after seeing that movie uh that like oh there's going to be another one um because that just seemed to undo so much of the mystery and i don't know complication of, of the film and then the fact that it had to be eyes which is so so you know, such a visual cop out. Um, it's like, and, you know, Mystique blinking at the end of any X-Men movie. It's like, oh my God. Uh, and so I was really disappointed in, in, in that. I mean, it could have been any number of visual surprises. Mm -hmm. Like maybe her arm is squiggling with eels or maybe the tattoo shows up in a cooler place. The fact that their eyes had to shimmer that way was pretty dreary. See, yeah. that's why you shouldn't have been sitting next to that guy. See, that's Probably. why when I saw this movie, I sit in the chairs that have nobody behind <laughs> you and nobody to either side of you. Um, so that, like, no, I can't hear any uh, anyone talking during the movie. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of, I mean, maybe there's other stuff they could have done, I'm sure. I, I kind of liked the ending, though, because I just felt like... Uh, you know, it, it sort of, I mean, they, they can't have her wandering off into the woods to find her husband, like in the book, because like the husband is a burnt up husk. And then there's this other guy that they've established is back in the Southern reach. Right. So like, I feel like they had to tie that up somehow. Um, and I just like the idea that, you know, they're, they're in this, you know, like they're, they're together and, um, and, and, and like people are saying, like, there's, there's no implication that the, um, the shimmer phenomenon is, is evil or malicious or anything. It's just changing things. And if you're highly invested in the status quo of the human race, uh, obviously this is not a good thing, but um, I felt like the ending was sort of weirdly upbeat in a way, you know, like it's sort of, again, it's like creepy and beautiful um, like the whole movie is. And then that's like a, a, the strength of it to me. Well, if you're on the side of area X, it's, it's definitely upbeat. <laughs> But it's not like a hundred, it's not, you know, it's like, it's a weird mix of creepy and beautiful. You know, it's not, it's not one or the other. I thought Area X seemed pretty evil 
in the movie. Uh, in the book, it's much more ambiguous. In the book, it's sort of a surrogate for global warming, as Jeff Vandermeer has said many times. And there's nothing of that in, in the movie. It seems very much a cancer, very much malicious. Of course, complicated by the fact that that creature at the very end doesn't seem maybe evil. Um, well, but... Uh, there's the scene though where she sees the the beautiful deer with the as uh, Leah mentioned with the what was it cherry blossoms or something on their antlers that's and that's else. like like the th- those aren't um, hostile you know that's like the beautiful peaceful nature part of Area X. Sure, I, I that's a great little sequence. It's amazing. Sorry, Andrew. No, that's okay. Uh, it's also it's it's another set of twins, mm-hmm. um, and it leads you to wonder that uh, perhaps if Lena hadn't come out shooting and had been able perhaps if Lena had been a less intelligent animal would the strange alien in the basement just have continued to mirror her movements and follow her through the woods mm-hmm. oh, yeah, because I think I think the two deer although they look very similar if memory serves one of them does look strangely like one of them doesn't look exactly like the other you have yeah the one on the, the on the far side of the one closer to the camera does have a slightly different skin to it. I mean, it was a very fleeting impression. No, no, def- like- no. The, the the one in the foreground is white, and then the one in the background is is like a weird like well, what's the word? Um, but it has like patches of green and red and gray or something like that. Mm. Um, piebald is the word I'm looking for. Although I'm not sure that's the right word, but yeah, it's it's they're they're definitely different for sure. I like, yeah, I like that idea because that was, that was sort of um, what I was coming away with was just that if she had, if she had responded to the creature differently, then she could have sort of written a different ending for it. It didn't have to go violent. Um, and it, I, yeah, I, I wanted to see what her double would look like. And I do, I like the connection with the two deer because that those two have clearly learned to work together. Um, and hop around in unison through the forest (laughs) so um yeah although i guess by the end she and kane are each other's they're sort of each other's double by the end right since they've each knocked out the other double (laughs) so that if that if humanity is going to find some sort of joining up with whatever is the engine behind area x it's going to have to look more like this because the 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 straight up twinning um, doesn't work quite so well. Our minds can't quite take it. Um, all right, cool. So there are um, two little Easter eggs I just want to mention. I think they're actually kind of dumb, but they're kind of interesting. So um, Kane has a tattoo on his chest of a bear. Uh, which sort of foreshadows the zombie bear attack, I guess. And then uh, the house that they stay in where they get attacked by the zombie bear has the exact same floor plan as Lena and Kane's house that we see them in in the past, the same like rooms and staircase and everything. Cool. I thought um, I actually thought that when I saw it, but then I thought I must be wrong. <laughs> so cool. But I don't. That doesn't really make any sense to me, because um, because it's all about mixing genes and stuff. It's not about like that that's like a Solaris type thing. Like it's pulling stuff out of your memory and recreating duplicate versions of it or something. But I don't know if that really makes a lot of sense in this story, but I don't know. If you like it though? I yeah. I actually I like the idea that it's responding to I like the idea that it's responding to them. 
but I do think that if they were going to go with that in the film, that maybe they should have made it a little clearer. Um, because yeah, I, I noticed that when they first went into the house and I was wondering if she was going to go upstairs again, like she never goes upstairs, but if she was going to go upstairs and find a cane double there. When, but then I was like, since they didn't make any more of the idea that the architecture was the same, then I thought I must just be rem- remembering it wrong because then it kind of didn't lead anywhere. It was just sort of there. So yeah, I think if they were going to do that, the idea that if area X is actually molding itself around their consciousnesses that they maybe should have done a little bit more of it so that you would pick up on it more throughout the film. Cause that would be cool. <laughs> it's actually interesting. Speaking of that house, if you go back and rewatch the movie in the very opening stuff, when the cane, what we know is by the end is the cane double, you see him when he walks up the stairs to, to see her, he kind of stops and looks at the pictures on the wall and if you're rewatching it, you can tell from the expression on his face, he's like, I don't know what these pictures are. I don't know who these people are. You know, he's totally like, you know, it's not like a guy returning home to a familiar house. He's just like, I don't know where I am or what's going on. Interesting. So, so I thought that was cool. Cool. I definitely want to see it again before it leaves theaters. Cause I really, I do want to experience, I want to have the full sensory experience of it again. Well, that's the thing is that I feel like, I mean, as I was saying with this Netflix deal, most people are not going to be able to see it in theaters. It's only in theaters in the US, I think Canada and China or something like that. And everywhere else, it's just going straight to Netflix. And I feel like if I watched this on my laptop, I feel like I would have been like, yeah, that was pretty cool. But I don't think I would have had anything like the reaction that I had to seeing it in the theater. I agree. Like, I def- this is, this is, to me at least, this is the definition of why you would go to a movie in the theater. Like, this is what you want to get out of a film in the theater, this sort of full sensory thing where it's actually leaving you feeling something and it's leaving you thinking about it rather than just, yeah, something you can put on in the background while you're like folding laundry or whatever. Um, And it's kind of heartbreaking to me (laughs) to think that people are just going to put this on on their TV and then do other stuff and like be on their phone or whatever and not have the experience that, that I got to have because I'm in this country (laughs) Um, that is kind of upsetting. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and that's part of the reason I went and saw it three times. Cause I'm like, oh, it's probably going to be, you know, out of theaters pretty soon. And then I'll never be able to see it in the theater ever again. And that's just, yeah, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Although, I mean, hopefully this will be, I mean, I feel like it has the potential. This, this has like interesting cult movie written all over it. Completely. Hopefully people will. Yeah. Yeah. Like this will be one that, you know, a generation from now people show at midnight at like videology or nighthawk or whatever <laughs> so people well, can i'll be there yeah. <laughs> yes. we will meet up um, that would be kind of amazing if we all reunited 10 years from now <laughs> <laughs> let's plan on it yeah. <laughs> all of us having acquired the uh the the Uruboros tattoo yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> well i guess actually no we'd have to see it in florida we would have to go see it in florida <laughs> Wow. For the true experience. All right, well, pe- pencil it in, guys. That'll be episode 1,298. Yeah, it it's a date. Yes. <laughs> but no, it's, it's, yeah, it's heartbreaking, too, that this, you know, I th- is so good. I mean, I know it's, it's not for everyone, but I think it's so good. And it's not, you know, it was just, it's not going to be in a lot of theaters. It's obviously not going to make a lot of money. And it just makes you wonder what's the future for original, serious, you know, like, offbeat 
um, science fiction movies like this on the big screen. It seems kind of, um, uh, yeah. Also, like P- PSA, like if it sounds like this is a movie you should see under the influence of, of substances, like so many people are like, well, I should get high for this. No, 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 no. Like, <laughs> you want to be stone cold sober for this viewing experience because it's just way too intense. Anyway, I thought You'll I thought be questioning I that reality enough. Exactly. As it is. Like you don't. Yeah, exactly. You don't want any kind of external exacerbator. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know if everyone listening to this goes out and buys it, buys fifty tickets. That's probably not still not even enough. But I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I sort of fantasize that this gets enough word of mouth that I don't know. I guess the Netflix deal is already in place and everything. I don't know what could change, but. I want more, I, you know, I want more movies like this. So, I don't know. Well, it's clearly going to be a movie that lives and dies by word of mouth, even just for its its domestic run. You know, is it going to, is it still going to be in the theaters next weekend or not is all about the people who saw it this weekend talking it up. You definitely get the feeling that the studio has kind of washed its hands. Oh, that's so sad. What? I, you know, I read an interesting um, article, though, and it was saying don't blame the studios, you know, that they, you know, they make Blade Runner 2049 and people don't go see it and they make this and people don't go see it. Like, it's not their fault if they don't keep spending money on movies like this. It's the fault of people, of the you know, like if the audience wants movies like this, you know, you got to, if you want to watch movies like this in the theater, you got to go to the theater to see it. So I did my part. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Are we talking I, about it I promise I'll go again. <laughs> I mean, there are so few movies that you sort of want to talk to, you know, talk about for for two hours, and this movie is certainly one of them. So let that be an endorsement in itself. Absolutely. Exactly. Maybe. Uh, well, I think that is help. a. Oh, sorry, Leah. Hmm? Oh, I was just saying maybe this will help. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Um, but all right, so I think that's a good note to end on. And so we've been speaking with Jason Kay, Leah Schnellbach, and Andrew Willett. So, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love talking about this movie again. <laughs> <laughs> and that was our panel. So big thanks again to Jason Kay, Leah Schnellbach, and Andrew Willett for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Jared Martin, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I also want to thank Alexandra Monier for sponsoring today's show. Check out her new novel, The Final Six, over at alexandramonier.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.